Hello and welcome to the National Trust podcast. I'm Laurie Morgan. I am a television presenter, a former flanker for the National Welsh rugby team and an international adventurer. And whether I'm representing Wales on the rugby pitch or on the home straight of a 350-mile non-stop Arctic Ultramarathon, I feel a huge amount of pride, shining a light on the history, culture and heritage of my home nation. But there was a point in the late 1500s when many elements of the Welsh culture and heritage I hold so dearly could have been lost if it wasn't for a hugely important artefact looked after by the National Trust. Today I'm heading to Chirk Castle on the English-Welsh border to take a look at this item and to learn more about the story of its creator. The world of endurance sport sees me spending huge amounts of time away from home. But wherever I've been, nothing ever beats the feeling of returning home. I'm currently driving back home to Wales through England after training for my latest adventure. For most of us, there's often some kind of landmark that signals we have arrived in the place we call home. The airport arrival hall of our local airport, the road sign that points to our hometown, or maybe it's just the sound of the key in our front door. But as well as the physical landmarks that signify your homecoming, there's one deeply significant aspect of a homecoming that most people take for granted. So I'm just heading through a section of this road that crosses the border from England into Wales and I'm about to encounter one of those deeply significant landmarks right now. Croeso i Gymru, welcome to Wales. Camerae cyflymder, speed cameras on our left. Croeso i Fwrdreisef Siriol Wrexham. Welcome to the town of Wrexham. Coming home and being met with the language of your country of origin is something many people don't give a second thought. But for me, seeing the Welsh language on road signs has a huge significance. If you've never made a visit to Wales before 1993, it could feel like these bilingual signs have been here forever. But in reality, these signs have only been in existence for about 30 years. And if you go back a few hundred years, these signs would not have only been rare, they'd have been illegal. In fact, if the Welsh language continued the trajectory of the 1500s, we could live in a world where the Welsh language would not have survived in its current form past 1588. And that likely would have been the case if it was not for an enterprising young man and the publication of a very special book. Up until the 16th century, the vast majority of the people of Wales knew nothing of any other language apart from Welsh. Their whole culture was, was entwined with the Welsh language, really. This is author and historian Eril Owain. It would have been an oral tradition, I think. Poets would rhyme and tell stories. Cwrw brad hai ddan gyrroddi o'n co, dwi'n 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 dw
co-wrote your... The poets of medieval Wales were very important in maintaining Welsh culture and tradition. They were the custodians of the language and of learning, really. Well, they walk here what I have paint of air. My wealthy will know that co-wrote Wales itself in the early 1500s was not a unified country. About a third of the land of Wales were ruled directly by the Crown from London. The rest of Wales was controlled by descendants of medieval barons, the marcher lords as they were known, and these people had the right to hold their own courts of law, to raise taxes, even to have their own private armies, which was really a recipe for chaos, if not for disaster. In the early 1500s, the relationship between England and Wales was starting to change. In 1509, Henry VIII became king and set about unifying Wales and England. One of the key reasons for this was after Henry's breakaway from the authority of the Catholic Church in Rome and his formation of the Church of England, there was some scepticism as to where the allegiances of Wales lay. There were concerns that support for Catholicism remained strong in Wales and there were fears that Wales would be some kind of backdoor by which Spain could attack England. So in 1536, the Act of Union was passed, which amalgamated Wales into England. One of the aims of the Act of Union was to make English the official language in Wales. It would be the language of the courts, language of administration, and you would not be able to have any kind of public post unless you were able to speak English. So English became the official language and Welsh was an unofficial language in its own country. But contrary to what you may think, this downgrading of the Welsh language wasn't met with the anger and protests you may expect. For some of the residents of Wales, the Act was actually welcomed. It provided the gentry with new opportunities to be appointed to official posts, to have closer contacts with London, to prosper materially. As far as ordinary people were concerned, it probably had very little direct impact. Speaking Welsh was not made illegal in itself, so as far as everyday lives of ordinary people, they carried on speaking and using Welsh in much the same way as they had done years before. But while there was no immediate detriment to the Welsh language, the 1536 Act had stealthily pulled the trigger on the slow and steady decline that might eventually wipe out the Welsh language. My name is Carwin Graves and I'm an author and I specialise in Welsh language culture. What happens in that situation often is that for any given speaker, the number of situations in which they'll choose to use language X really just becomes narrower and narrower and narrower so that the next generation pick that up from their parents and the more it declines, the less utility speakers of their own language see that language as having. And over time, people might decide, and in many cases have decided, that they will stop passing that language on to their children and that it'll be more advantageous to pass another one on. Uh, and that is a well-known, recognised process called language shift. And this could have been the fate for the Welsh language if it wasn't for a very special man who lived in a very special house. The name of the man... William Morgan, and the name of the house, Team Aur. Here, 
Just like today, in the 1500s, the transport of goods was an important part of the Welsh economy. In 2022, we have logistics and haulage companies, but in the 1500s, this was the work of drovers. Drovers transported the commodity of the time, livestock, from rural farms to the towns and markets where they'd be sold. These official drovers' routes snaked for hundreds of miles through the country lanes and mountain tracks of England and Wales. One route in particular was a route that linked the farms of Llyn in the northwest of Wales to the markets of the English towns of Shrewsbury and Chester, around 80 miles to the east. This route wove its way through the Snowdonia mountain range and could take days to complete. If you were a drover that found yourself on a remote section of this route as night fell and the heavens opened, you may be on the lookout for some food and shelter. And if you found yourself in this situation, in the Wibernant Valley, it's likely that a house called Timaur Wibernant was the only place to go. Timaur Wibernant functioned like what we think of as a Premier Inn or a motorway service station. People could stop there, they could be refreshed and they could have a break. I'm Nathan Munday, former custodian of Timaur Wibernant. Drovers are a very precious part of the Welsh rural history, as it were. The drovers are not only moving animals, they're moving dialects, they're moving accents, they're moving the English tongue. They're bringing the outside world onto William Morgan's doorstep. What would William have seen inside the house? Herbs would have been strewn on the floor like a medieval potpourri. Animals would have been kept inside as well, so the smells would have been quite an assault. On the left, there's the main hall. He would have maybe experienced the Nossan Lawen, in English, a night of merrymaking, the rich language, the old stories. The drovers and travellers came from all over the country, and I can imagine him listening. <laughs> And while standing there, watching and listening to those drovers, William was gaining a rich and vivid education in the language and law of Welsh culture. But this was not the kind of education that would allow him to aspire to the academic heights that would see him publish the book that would change the course of the Welsh language. For that, he would need to go to university. It was essential to study at university, to have a career in the church, to have a career in the law. There were no universities in Wales in the in the 16th century. Indeed, the only two universities were at Oxford and Cambridge. Most people who went to university at that time were from privileged background. So in terms of someone like William Morgan... I would imagine it'd be totally impossible for anyone from the yeomanry class, shall we say, to be able to proceed to university off their own back. But as a yeomanry farmer managing part of the estate for the landowner, Maurice Wynne, it was his father, John's connection with the Wynne family that gave William his passport to a more classical education at the Wynne family's residence, Gwydir Castle. William Morgan would have been uh, almost certainly educated at Gwydir 
alongside the sons of Morris Wynne. He would have learned the rudiments of the classical education. Latin was essential to gain access to university. He would also have gained access to another aspect of learning. Morris Wynne was a patron of the poets, so what he gained at Gwydir was sort of twofold. Classical education, yes, but further understanding and knowledge of his Welsh heritage as well. During his time at Gwydir Castle, William would have shown he was an excellent scholar, an excellent linguist, and it's likely he'd have been sponsored by the Wynne family to pursue his academic career at Cambridge. At Cambridge, he spent the next 13 years gaining qualification after qualification. BA, MA and BD, becoming proficient in Greek, Hebrew, It's almost certain he learnt French, possibly German, perhaps Italian. One of the poets at the time says that he was fluent in eight languages. William Morgan completed his university education in 1578 and at this point he was appointed as vicar of the rural parish of Llanrheider and Mochnant and it was in this rural idyll that he started writing. William Morgan began on his lifetime's work of preparing the book. The task was completed by 1587. With his manuscript in hand, William made his way to London, likely travelling there with drovers. There he spent a year, painstakingly editing the book page by page, and in 1588 the work was finally ready. For the first time in history, there was a complete translation of the New and Old Testament of the Bible in the language of Welsh. To hear the Bible being read in Welsh, one poet, for example, says that he couldn't restrain himself from dancing up and down in his joy at hearing God's word being spoken in Welsh. English was still the language of official communications, but Welsh people had a written form of the language that you were able to use, and that is perhaps different from what happened in Cornwall, for example, where the Cornish language more or less disappeared by the end of the 18th century. Uh, it was different perhaps from what happened in Scotland and in Ireland, where to a much lesser extent there were written forms of Gaelic. So having written Welsh was very, very important, and the Bible set that standard and enabled Wales to continue to be a language of learning and a language of culture. Only a few surviving copies of the original 1588 Bible were made. And while most are locked away in private collections, one of those copies of the Bible is looked after by the National Trust. I'm on my way to Turk Castle, where the Bible is currently on display to get a closer look at this hugely important artefact. So I've just pulled into the car park and the castle is up this hill and it's quite a walk. The woodland has disappeared. The castle's coming into view. Wow, look at this. All different shapes, turrets and squares and 
beautiful stone. Magnificent. What a beautiful sight. I'm now approaching the grand entrance, a huge archway, which is about three times higher than me. Um, it seems locked. It's doing a good job of keeping people out. Hello. Oh, a grate is opened. Hello. Oh, hello. Hello. Are you Karen? I am. You must be Lowry. I am indeed. <laughs> I'll just get the portcullis open for you. Oh, thank you very much. Wow. Hello. How impressive. What an entrance. So you're Karen George, the collections and house manager. And I hear you have the 1588 Bible. We do. Wow. Would you like to come and see it? Oh, yes, please. Well, you're Thank most you. welcome. Come on with me. So while we're walking, can you tell us a little bit, Karen, about the history of this castle? Yeah, so the castle was built between 1295 and 1310 by Roger Mortimer. He was one of Edward I's men. And then from 1595, Thomas Middleton I bought Chirk for £5,000. I'm looking forward to seeing inside the house. Right, follow me. Wow, look at this entrance. So we've got this wonderful sweeping ornate staircase going up to the first floor. Along the walls, we have portraits of the family. This gentleman in his red coat is the first of Thomas Middleton, the chap who purchased Chirk in 1595. We're going into the long gallery now. This is where we have the Bishop Morgan Bible on display. Fantastic, thank you. Wow, so this is it. It's a big book, isn't it? It certainly is. <laughs> it looks is. very heavy. It, it is quite heavy. It's a hardback book covered in a calf skin, so it's sort of a brown leather, almost like a caramel colour, isn't it? And then on the spine, gilded lettering. We were taught about William Morgan's Bible at school, but we never got to see it. So this is quite a special moment for me in particular. Would you like to see inside? Oh, yes, please. So we don't do this very often, if at all. But being as you're here, oh, we'll... Uh, I feel honoured. So we'll just lift the lid off. And we'll put it over there. I feel a bit nervous just touching it, That's to be it. honest yep. with you. That's it. Um, it's quite difficult to, to read, but it basically says, Ether arosti and a pethai are the skyst, aka amdriedoit iti, can we bod, can boy a the skyst, akiti erinvachen we bod, er skrithirlan, er hon vid abel ifnithir and doith, i yechidoriath, trir feather hon vid unchrist yesi. This book will make you wise to life and the faith in this book will help you through Jesus Christ, will help you on your way in life. That's fantastic. Fascinating. I've not read Welsh this old for a very, very long time and it's written in a beautiful calligraphy does take a while to get used to the calligraphy and the different spelling for some words. 
Chirk Castle and Timaur are both part of the National Trust. Why is this book here and not in Timaur, where William Morgan was born? Unfortunately, Timaur had to close for a, for a little while. We're lucky to look after it for um, a period of time for safekeeping, essentially. We also have a, almost a partner piece to the Bishop Morgan Bible, which is this smaller version that you can see here on the right. So this is affectionately known as Bible Bach. It's much smaller, as you can see, in size to the, the Bishop Morgan Bible. Its size meant that it was more portable and it was more affordable for people. I can imagine the country folk are wearing bobble, as we say in Welsh. If they could afford a Babel Bach, I can imagine them carrying it to church and sharing it amongst their friends and, and reading at home with the family and just spreading the language. Now, we know with the Bishop Morgan Bible, it was instrumental in preserving the Welsh language and it's strongly felt that the Bible Bach here played an important part in that as well. This pocket version was sponsored by the first Sir Thomas Middleton. That really is what cements that link between Chirk and Timaur and the Bible. So it is quite ironic that it's come back to here yeah, then. I can't think of a better place. I know the 1588 version isn't currently at Timaur, but after seeing William Morgan's work, I, I feel a trip to Timaur is a must because I need to get a sense of the man himself. It is an hour's drive away, but it's totally worth it. Um, and you will be able to sort of put yourself in the shoes of Bishop Morgan when you go. Look out for Tristan Edwards. He's the general manager of Snowdonia and he looks after Timaur. So anything you want to know about Timaur, he'll be able to tell you. Oh, dear Thank you very much. You're welcome. I've made the hour drive northwest of Chirk and I'm just a few minutes away from where this whole story began. And I can't lie. I'm a little bit excited. I've just turned off the A5 onto this remote, winding and twisting road, which climbs steeply through this sea of pine trees. It's a beautiful area, encased in greenery with dots of purple foxgloves, leading us towards Timau. And it's very steep. Even the car's struggling to make it up. So when you do eventually have a chance to peer through the woodland, it's just a vast of nothingness, just greenery and mountains and just a breathtaking view. Now, this location feels remote, even in 2022. So it must have felt like the edge of the world to those drovers using this route in the 1500s at the time when William Morgan lived here. Coming to the top of the climb, the trees are now behind us and we're able to look down the valley and there's one house I can see here. I suspect that that is Timaur. And after the journey we've just been on, I'm sure all those drovers would have had a smile on their face seeing this place, because it's in the middle of nowhere. And here we are, Timaur Wibernant, the complete opposite of Chirk Castle. It's small, 
but it's beautiful and it's peaceful. Here we are outside Timaur. Got a beautiful dry stone wall as an entrance with this wooden gate and just some stepping stones. And we've got ferns growing, just walking over across a little stream. What an amazing place. We're looking at a stone cottage with a slate roof and a wonky chimney. It has two tiny windows at the top, one tiny door, and it just looks absolutely beautiful. I don't think anybody's here, but I'm sure I can hear some noise coming from the main house, so I'll make my way towards Timaur. Now, let's see if there's somebody here. Tristan? Hello. Are you in there? Oh, hello, Shamai. Hello, how can I help you? I'm Lowry. Hello, Lowry. Sorry to barge in, but we've been over to Church Castle where we met Karen, and she said that you'd be the best person to show us around Team Hour. Well, welcome to Team Hour. Let me take you into the house. Okay. Oh, uh, mind the step. So, 440 ish years ago, William Morgan would have been standing here listening to the drovers come in and out. It would have been a gossip palace, stories and singing, poetry. Timaur now is a house of two halves, so we're here on the ground floor and we get to really get the spirit of place. But if we go upstairs, uh, which is where we've had the 1588 Bible. Do take care as we go up the stairs, it's very steep. And use the handrail. <laughs> The 1588 would have rested in this cabinet. The 1588 Bible was here for 30 years and now it's not. Do you feel a sense of loss now it's not here? It's a real shame that it isn't here at the moment. What we're hoping for towards the future is that we'll be able to repatriate it to Timaur and present it in all its glory again. Over the pandemic period, we've tried to make sure that we have an action plan for this. How do we present it in the future? And in the way you've experienced it today, which is a Bible on tour, if there were 3,000 people seeing it here in any one year pre-COVID, there'll be 20, 30 times more that are able to experience it in church. And we'd like to develop that ability for the Bible to be able to move to relevant places. And of course, it needs to be coming back home every now and then. And I'm not overhung up about it becoming a permanent fixture here because I think the ability of us to take the story wider the story is evolving here in Timaur. One thing that we never envisaged was it becoming an international collection of Bibles. I have a box here, Laurie, which um, I'll just open it up. I've got a few examples in this box of how the story is evolving. So we've got Bibles here with Arabic on it and, and some languages that I, I've never seen before. So some of the Bibles in this box often put in a plastic bag next to the door by people that were touched by what Timaur meant and felt that they wanted to give something back. Buku uh, Lopatulike, Malawi. I think this looks Russian. Donated by Peter Perland. It's in Ukrainian. Ukraine, is it? Some of them have included letters. Here we have Holy Bible. 
I can understand that. It's H-O-L-I-B-A-I-B-U-L. Uh, dear sir, while travelling in North Wales, friends kindly took me to visit the property of which you are custodian. At the time, I promised to send you a Bible with a truly Australian accent. These scriptures are published in the Creole language, a dialect in general use among Australian Aborigines. Will you please place this among the Bibles already on your shelves? I will let our first Aboriginal bishop, Arthur Malcolm, know that this transaction has taken place. Isn't that nice? You can see how passionate she is about I, getting absolutely. the book and to you. There are, there are so many stories, what it means to people who may have experienced a similar experience in languages across the earth. So what would have been most probably a museum just for one Bible has now evolved to include Bibles of all backgrounds, all different languages. We've got a collection of well over 150 languages. Tristan, it's been fascinating. Thank you very much for showing me around and I'll let you get on with your day. Well, thank you very much, Laurie. Even with the publication of the Welsh translation of the Bible in 1588, the wheels of decline for Welsh speakers in Wales that had been set in motion by the Act of Union in 1536 continued until present day. In 1991, Wales's Welsh-speaking population had fallen to just 18.7%. In 1891, it was more than double that. And even with the 1993 Welsh Language Act finally reversing almost all the restrictions on Welsh language brought in by the 1536 Act of Union, by 2011, the Welsh-speaking population in Wales had risen just 0.3% to 19% or 500,000. To tackle this slow growth, in 2017, the Welsh Government started a campaign to double the number of Welsh speakers to 1 million or a third of the nation, by 2050. At the time of recording, we are still waiting for the main results of the 2021 census, which will give us more accurate data. But an early estimate of 2018 showed the number of Welsh speakers in Wales had already risen to about 800,000. And if this estimate proves to be correct, we are well on our way to that 2050 target. As I walk around Timaur's peaceful grounds, I reflect and remember back to when I was a teenager. Driving around the streets of Wales before the 93 Act, this ability to connect with my culture so richly through language would have been a pipe dream. But to realise that part of the reason that a language has survived intact enough for us to see this growth in its usage started in that house behind me. It gives me such an understanding of why this little house and its contents is such an important place for the National Trust to care for. I never really appreciated the impact William Morgan's translation had on our national identity, but now I do. And now with the understanding of how close we came to losing our language and the culture we know today, I feel even more connected to my roots than I did at the start of this journey. And there's another reason I feel connected to this place. Just like William, my surname is Morgan and my first name is Lori, the same as William's mother. I was actually named after her by my Daki, my granddad, 
which makes this feel like even more of a homecoming. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the National Trust podcast. To hear a version of this episode in Welsh, look for an episode of the National Trust podcast called Team Hour Wibernant, Cartref a Cyfieithydd, in a podcast feed, or go to nationaltrust.org.uk slash podcasts. We'll be back soon with a new episode, but for now, from me, Laurie Morgan, goodbye.